0: Welcome to Daisy Oz Productions, featuring Conscious Living Interviews. I'm your host, Daisy Oz. Welcome to Daisy Oz Productions in Studio 7. And I am happy to be interviewing a famed psychic astrologer, Robert Phoenix, who has been known to make a number of accurate predictions, including the one for Donald Trump, the election of Donald Trump. Drawing upon numerous influences ranging from Joseph Campbell, Carl Jung, and William Blake to Dwayne Rudyard and Krishnamurti, Robert uses an eclectic and multidisciplinary style to astrology, enacting a psychic and intuitive approach to readings. He has been a recurring guest on Clyde Lewis's Ground Zero, Reality Check with Jay Widener, Inside the Matrix with Jimmy Brent, Off the Planet Radio, The Vinnie Eastwood Show, and he has a Sunday night astral live stream, which you shouldn't miss because it's always live and kicking. Mr. Phoenix is also a coach and trains people to become professional astrologers. So welcome, Wizard of the Stars, Robert Phoenix.
1: Thanks, Jason, for having me. It's good to be here.
0: Awesome. I'm happy that you're here too. And these virtual meetings are very interesting, but they're becoming Comfortable,
1: good, good, good. Hopefully, they don't become too comfortable, and you just become glued to the virtual reality. That um, I think that they want to be able to glue the rest of us in. So, comfort is good. Complacency is never good.
0: That's a good point. I tend to shut off everything in the evening, and the mornings I don't turn anything on, and get that quiet time at communion time. Great. Well, let's talk astrology. So I want to start with like how long you've been working with astrology and then what sparked you to take up this path? And were there like any childhood influences?
1: Mm -hmm. Childhood influences. Yes and no, I would say. Uh, When I was a kid. I remember asking my mother, you know, when my birthday was. And. She said September 22nd. And I love the sound of that. I'm like, I don't know what this means, but I love the sound of September 22nd. It just kind of, you know, rolled right off of my tongue. And so I became sort of interested in the, in the day, in the day. Uh, but I didn't really quite understand astrology as a kid. I, but I was interested, definitely interested in, in the stars. I was de- really, I was a space freak as a kid. I love space. Um, I was really into science fiction. I loved science fiction. And I remember going to see 2001 A Space Odyssey when it came out at the movie theaters and being kind of blown away and mystified. Uh, and then, but I was also really into psychic phenomena as a kid. I used to have very unusual dreams, I would have kind of psychic experiences. So I was, uh, you know, born during the 1960s so most people born during the 1960s and up through early 70s have neptune and scorpio like late late 50s up through around 1970 actually when neptune moves into sagittarius um so neptune and wh- and scorpio, what does that mean robert yeah so nep- so generationally we have planets that define kind of who we are generationally the outer planets define who we are generationally So the big planet that defines us generationally is Pluto and, um, you know, the baby boomers have Pluto and Leo, It really defines them. It defines kind of their style, their, their energy, um, their, you know, cultural or generational imprint. Um, and then, you know, after the baby boomers, we have Pluto and Virgo, which is kind of an interesting time because, it, that's a generation that's not always considered to be baby boomerish, although they're kind of folded in. And Pluto goes into Virgo, I believe, nineteen fifty-seven. 1957. 1957, Pluto moves into Virgo. But those people that are born in 1957 are very different than the people born in, say, like 1942, 1943, when Pluto and Leo takes place. And you get and, and they call it the baby boom because you know, after 1945, you have all these soldiers. They're coming home from the war and they're getting busy. They're they're making babies, so you have this really big explosion of people that takes place during that time. So in 1957, Pluto moves into Virgo, and it's a it's a very very different energy. Uh, baby boomers are marked in a lot of ways by you know what we call star power, and a lot of the you know the uh, icons of the 20th century are are baby boomers. And from music to film to sports, these are very iconic people. And the Pluto and Virgo people tend to be a bit different, and they kind of get lumped into the baby boom generation, but they're really not. And then after that, when we get into the early 70s, Pluto moves into Libra. And really, that's kind of mm, sort of the demarcation of Generation X. Although... And one can make a case that people born like in 1968, 1969, 1970, that these people are kind of more Gen X-y than they would be like the Pluto and Virgo people. So, uh, you know, then we go into the millennials when Pluto comes into Scorpio in 19, late 84, 1985. And that starts another Pluto cycle. And so we have generations that are defined by by Pluto. And just as Pluto defines generations, so does Neptune. And Neptune has 15 year cycles. And every 15 years, Neptune changes signs. So when I was born in 1960, Neptune was in the sign of Scorpio. So we look at what Neptune represents. Neptune is connected to things like spirituality, God, um, dissolving social structures and a lot of other things so every generation is sort of defined in some ways by neptune so my generation uh is defined by neptune and things like scorpio which is you know interest in things like psychic phenomena drugs gothic goth music things that are dark um, psychedelic (laughs) some some degree in some ways kind of a
0: neptunian isn't that the word the meaning kind of neptunian is psychedelic Well,
1: not really. I mean, so Mm. for me, like when I think of Neptune and Scorpio, you know, I think of things for me like, you know, like Fritz Lang and Metropolis, which is really dark and kind of futuristic and dystopic, Um, but it definitely has a mood, right? It has a mood. Um, If you go back to the baby boomers, they have Neptune and Libra, and they're the generation that begins to go through a lot of divorces, you know, their parents go through divorces. Um, They go through a lot of divorces. You know, you look at um, like a, a film, like the big chill, which is really kind of this iconic baby boom movie. And it's all about relationships and it's all about, you know, affairs and, you know, identities, things like that. Right. But, but Neptune doesn't always mean psychedelic. It does mean that there is a an influence, right? Neptune is about influencing. And it's influencing in a kind of a uh an emotional way, a psychic way, uh a not, you know, non-corporeal. So and it's and so to some degree you may get some psychedelia with Neptune, right? Because during the 60s we had, you know, we had psychedelic music in the 60s. Mm-hmm. But I was only seven years old when the Summer of Love was happening. So even though I was very close to San Francisco and there was a lot of psychedelic imagery around, I wouldn't necessarily say that it was my thing. I was much more interested in other things than than that in a lot of ways. That was that was more kind of baby boom, technicolor, you know, the monkeys, hard days, night, um, you know, things went along with that. So then you get into the, the millennials, not the millennials, but the Gen Xers, and they have Neptune and Sagittarius, which is very, very different. It's much more, in some ways, I would say overtly spiritual in a lot of ways. So my generation was into things like psychic phenomena, which is very scorpionic, and magic, and drugs, yes. And, yes. and shamanism, right? All those kinds of scorpionic eighth house things. So I was interested in that. I was definitely interested in psychic phenomena. like when i was a kid i would try to move objects with my mind i wasn't very good at it (laughs) Uh, but i would try i would focus real hard on trying to move objects in my head um so that kind of led into a lot of other things like you know how things work and you know when i was a kid i would you know i would i was really good at guessing things like i was good at guessing like numbers that people had in their mind and and it was just natural like i just you know have these instincts? And I think a lot of people who were born. I think, first of all, I think all people have psychic instincts, intuitive instincts. But that came very natural to me.
0: I know you mentioned uh, to me once that the people born during that generation in the '60s um, with that Neptune and Pluto are profound healers, is how you put it.
1: Yeah, well, that that's the Pluto um, Pluto Uranus conjunction. And Uranus is one of these other generational planets. Although with Uranus, it's like subgenerations. Uranus has seven-year cycles. So Uranus went into Virgo. Look, well, it went into Virgo before I was born, but it went retrograde. So I was actually born with Uranus and Leo. Uh, people after me, not long after me, like you know, less than a year after me, were born with Uranus and Virgo. So we have this Uranus-Pluto conjunction which takes place during the 60s, it's actually quite, quite special in a lot of ways. So a lot of people that are born late 1961, all the way up to like 1970, when we begin to see these outer planets begin to shift, um, were born during this Pluto-Uranus conjunction. And the, the real sort of sweet spot of that conjunction is from 1966 to about 1968. So we're really in that summer of love period. And a lot of people born during that time are actually really profound healers and really, really good at alternative healing. And um, so that, you know, they're coming in, like, you know, when you think about people that are born, they're coming in on an energy and the energy obviously is going to be defined by where the planets are. But if you look at the times, you can look at, you know, when people are coming in and what's happening during those times and you know, the events, the kind of the, the psychic gestalt, they're all defining sort of who that person can be as they're born into a particular milieu. So during the 60s, look, that period, you get that Pluto-Uranus conjunction in Virgo. Virgo is a sign that's connected with healing and service. And Pluto is deep and profound, and Uranus brings that, that unusual kind of wild card angle. And a lot of people from that period of time have to go through their own healing crisis as well in order for them to tap into those gifts. And there's been a lot of activation happening um, with Neptune opposition, transiting Neptune opposition through Pisces, you know, with Uranus and Pluto and Virgo. So this is a time where a lot of people born during that period are either being forced through a healing crisis or they're being forced through an employment crisis or they're being forced to an identity crisis to explore and deepen these attributes that they have.
0: Wow. I can relate to that. So not the only one, huh?
1: No, <laughs> well, you're, 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 you're part of a big wave. We're
0: all going through it. Right. Yeah. The vortex. So I kind of led you off the path a bit there, but I love listening to your wisdom on the stars and the planets and how did you get initiated into this field and or get your training, your initial training, Robert?
1: So when I was 20, almost 21, I had this um, what I call a spiritual crisis, you know, what I call the dark, the dark night of the soul. And as a result of that, I had this very interesting kind of conversion experience where I felt like, you know, the hand of God had lifted me up and put me on a different path in my life. It was really very interesting and things began to change for me in a very unique kind of way. And I was always kind of a, you know, I was one of those kids that had a lot of potential and I would have moments of brilliance and then I would have moments of self-destruction uh, of a Scorpio rising. So as I found out about astrology, I was, Oh, well, this kind of makes sense. But it was during that time where I had this, you know, this, what i call a conversion experience for lack of a better term. And then I started to have this, a lot of phenomena begin to happen to me like seeing auras um, having really kind of telepathic experiences with people um a lot of other things were going on during that time out of body experiences and that period of what i would call initiation lasted until probably around 1985 or so so roughly from around 81 to about 80 about a four-year period and it culminated when I went on this tour with all these different spiritual communities around the world. So I was part of a group of people. And I remember there was this one woman who was a part of her group and she did a computer printout of my chart. It was the first time I'd ever seen my chart. And um, I looked at it, and I went, "Wow, that's kind of interesting. What, is, what does this mean? But I wanted to find out more about it. And she, you know, she described some of it. And then when I got back to California after I did all this traveling, I took a course in astrology with a woman who was teaching it at the local elementary school as kind of a you know community class, and I found that I had a, a a real knack for it very quickly, and it was part of a kind of an ongoing sort of exploration of systems at that time, and I was looking into things like um, numerology and the runes. I got I was obsessed with numerology for a while then I became obsessed with runes and then I got into astrology and found that I could figure it out. It was like I didn't really learn it it was like more like relearning it once I dove in. And it sort of, you know, was kind of there in the back burner uh, for a while. And then then uh, I think it was 1990 uh, somebody gave me a tarot deck and I started to learn tarot. It was the the Voyager deck which is a very interesting beautiful kind of collage deck. So then I, I, I got good at that. I was like, okay, I understand this now. And then and I kind of continued to graduate through the tarot world. And then I think it was around 1993, maybe, 1993, 1994, I, I started to, you know, study with this woman named Karen Lundegaard. And she was a, a trans medium. She lived in Berkeley. And she was a really interesting person. And she was a, she'd been an engineer. Like that was her trade, stock and trade. She was an engineer. And she started having, you know, these psychic experiences and all this phenomena. And she wound up dropping her professional job. And she became, you know, real legitimate transmedium. And I remember like the first time I did a reading with her, sitting in her room, a room in her house in Berkeley and being amazed by what was taking place because she was able to have this room talk to her, like the the room would snap, crackle, pop. I mean, all these things were going on in terms of like confirmation in this experience. And then I remember one point she was in touch with the spirit of my grandfather and trying to uh, communicate I guess through him to me and she had a really hard time doing that because my grandfather had asthma and she didn't know that. And she found it very hard to breathe while she was talking to me and I was, I was just blown away. And then I think I had another reading with her. She, she said, look, I'm going to be teaching a course, uh, in trans mediumship, you know, you might like it. So I said, okay, I'll do that. And it was kind of amazing, you know. Again, it was another confirmation that, like, I had gifts, right? Like, I could tap into something. We did psychometry. We did a lot of, you know, all these very, you know, kind of a version of remote viewing. Um, and then I decided to, I don't know how it really started, but I started doing tarot readings for people in my apartment building. I was managing this apartment building in Oakland. And people found out that I could, you know, could read tarot cards. And I remember my neighbor downstairs who was um, from Africa and he would come up and he would trade me like this peanut curry food for readings, peanut curry (laughs) chicken and rice with really strong tea. It was cool. I I was like, okay, I like this. So (laughs) then, so then I answered an ad in the, um, this guess it was the San Francisco Weekly or Guardian. And it was, again, back in the 90s. So they were doing a lot of, you know, telephone psychic stuff. Like that's what, that was a really big thing. This is all kind of pre-Miss Cleo. And I hooked up with these two women who were legit psychics in San Francisco. And they partnered with a guy who used to work for AT&T. So they were starting their own kind of psychic network. So they, I had to audition for them and do a reading for them, and then they hired me. So I did that for a while, and at that time I was working with the, the Crowley deck or the Thoth deck, and there's a lot of astrological symbolism inside of the Crowley deck, and I was always kind of aware of what was going on astrologically at that time. So I was doing that, and I wound up doing a lot of, a lot of tarot readings uh, in the 90s um, through that, through that uh, service, and then afterwards on my own, and that was really kind of my bread and butter in a lot of ways in the nineties, I was also working for a, ma- a magazine that was kind of on its last legs and doing a lot of like music journalism. So I was combining both of these worlds and doing a lot of, a lot of terror readings. I, I had clients all over the country. It was really interesting. You know, back then there was no internet. Um, well, there was, but it wasn't like I had a presence on there. So it was all word of mouth and there was no PayPal. People would just send me checks. And I would say, you know, only one time did somebody not send me a check. Which was pretty cool, and I would just take the checks and I'd go to a bank. <laughs> it was fine. It was very, it was a very kind of, you know, gypsy-like existence in a lot of ways, and I continued to do that until about 2000. In 2000, I made this leap mm. to dot-com world, and I did dot-com world for five years. So, Silicon Valley startup. I was writing the thick of you know the first wave of silicon valley it was really interesting and very exciting and um fun uh so and i managed to stick around everybody was dropping like flies but i managed to stick around and i did that for 5 years and then eventually i had a kid and um and and was a stay at home dad for a while mm. And then I kind of got back into the astrology, not the astrology game, but the dot com game, for a couple of years. It didn't really, didn't really pan out. And I was going through some major transits in my life at that time. Huge, it was a huge time in my life. Was it like a Pluto transit going on? Uh, so yes and no. It was more, it was more Saturn, and so I had Saturn conjuncting uh, Uranus in my chart, and then I had a Saturn Pluto conjunction. In my chart, and that Saturn-Pluto conjunction absolutely changed my life. And that's around the time that my father died. And you know, the Saturn's the father in the chart it's represented. So my father, my father died during that time. Uh, I was, you, you know, getting a, a divorce, and then even this weird .com job that I had ended in in kind of a very strange way that I could clearly track astrologically. Uh, So during that time, after I, you know, had sort of transited out of this dot com gig, I started a website and I was just kind of messing around with it and playing around with it. So this is around maybe 2007, I think, 2008. And I think it was August of 2008. When um, maybe a little bit before that, I think it was uh, when Sarah Palin was nominated to be vice president. I'm like, well, who is this person? What are they about? And of course I had astrology in my back pocket and I'd never done an astrological post. But I thought, let me, let me do a post on Sarah Palin's chart. So I did. And there was this website called Elsa Elsa at that time. It was a very popular astrological website. And there was this woman who was sort of like this maven, this internet maven of astrology. And so she would post a lot of stories of, you know, people doing astrological blog posts on her website. And she started to post my stuff a lot. And I just, I mean, it just went through the roof. I'm like, wow, Mm this thing is happening. This thing is happening. So maybe I should stay with it. So I did. And then I, I think the next piece I did was on astrology in the Reagan era. And it was a piece on Joan Quigley, who was the Reagan's astrologer uh, and whom I actually had met, by the way, when I was back in uh, San Francisco working for San Francisco magazine. She was a really strange woman, very, very unusual,
2: <laughs> like
1: scared as a rabbit. Hmm. So, I, you know, it wasn't like I gleaned any particular astrological insight from her, but from a personal perspective, she was very unusual. Very, mm. And there are certain things you just couldn't talk about with her. But she was Nancy Reagan's astrologer. And, you know, theoretically, a lot of the stuff that Reagan was involved in, Joe quickly had a hand in it. And, then, of course, there's a history of astrologers working with kings and queens and presidents and all those things. So then I did a post on Barack Obama. Mm. And I didn't know who Barack Obama was until maybe a couple months before then when he started to get a lot, of, a lot of buzz. And I remember finding this picture of him where he just got out of the ocean and he's wearing a pair of swim, swim trunks. And I found another kind of version of that picture with Kennedy. And it was when Kennedy was, I think, either president or running for president. And it wasn't as, you know, kind of archetypal. Um, but it was Kennedy on the beach in shorts, and he had all these women around him. And this one is Obama, and he's in shorts, and he's just come out of the ocean, and so he's all kind of gleaming and wet. It's like he's emerged out of our collective unconscious. You know, he's become this kind of archetype. You know, he's you know Poseidon. He's born new out of the ocean. And and uh, I thought at that time there was really no astrological chart on Obama as well. So there was this, I'm not sure if it was Lois Roden or somebody else, but I found a chart on Obama, which said that he was um, a Scorpio rising. And I'm like, this actually makes sense to me because we'd have Neptune on his ascendant playing with that Neptune and Scorpio. He's part of the generation Neptune and Scorpio. And then later people said, well, no, he's an Aquarius rising. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not sure how much we really know about his birth chart, to be honest with you. Mm. Um, so I had him pegged as Scorpio rising. And I think that that's probably true to this day. So I did that post and I, and I just started to get up and running and I got into it. I really got it, I became obsessed with my website. And at that time, Pluto had just moved into Capricorn. And, I'm, and I'm, you know, for me, it was like a holy shit moment. <laughs> because we were having this it was having a major impact on the economy you know, that's the beginning of the housing crisis you know the all right. those lows loads that went bad so like, what is what does this mean you know what does Pluto mean in Capricorn for the cycle that it's in so I did this whole series called the melting economy hmm. with Pluto and Capricorn and it was about a nine-part series looking at projecting outwards you know how things were going to go could potentially go and some of that stuff I think I got right um, during that time. So eventually, people started to ask me about readings and do I do readings. And I remember the first person that did that. And I said, yeah, I do. And I hadn't done an astrological reading for anybody, really. Most of the readings I'd done were either tarot readings or a combination of tarot and astrology and psychic stuff. But this is like, okay, here's a chart. You know, go for it. So I did, and I recorded it. I was like, "I'm going to record this reading." So I got into recording using computer software, and that's when it all started. And
2: nice.
1: other astrologers started to pick up my not astrologers, but other um, people had websites. MySpace was big back then. I had a MySpace page. There were other people that had other kinds of social media platforms, and they were starting to pick it pick it up. I got into I got into Facebook, and really connected with a lot of Facebook astrologers during that time although I never felt like I was really part of the Facebook astrological community in some ways I felt very outside of it um, and then I started to do podcasting in 2010 and was pretty early in the game actually so I started to do podcasting and it wasn't all astrological I was doing I think, I think my second interview was with Jay Weidner I think um, who does reality check and who would later uh, employ me at Gaia to do a 25 part series at Gaia. So Jay was one of my first guests.
2: Hmm.
1: And my first guest was Ellis Taylor, who's a numerologist. And I think my second guest was this kid from Houston named Gentile Ab- Abdullah, who had. I read this story about him. They figured out the secret to time travel. And I thought, well, let me interview this 14 year old kid, see what see what he's got. Hmm. So so I did that. He was a guest. And uh, and then it just took off. And then I eventually moved into podcasting for astrology. I found a a platform at that time called Blog Talk Radio, which was not a bad platform for a while. I think it's still around. And um, they had a really good chat. So I was doing astrological content on Fridays. I'd have a show, and I would I would read people's charts, and I did that for a long time. I did that for about three or four years. Did a lot of free readings, hmm. and and eventually I I moved over from blog talk to Spreaker, which was kind of this intermediary phase until I went to YouTube, and then I started to do um, live streams on YouTube in 2015, and that's nice. when. I, that's when I started to do Sunday night Astro live on YouTube. So that was um, six years ago. And uh, since then, uh, I created another channel on YouTube, That YouTube banned. I got banned from YouTube uh, with one of my channels. So I do have a new astrological channel that I started. My old one is still up there. I have a lot of content on that channel. I just can't access it because I had two channels and one account I was banned. So that's a, blanket ban, and I can't use that one channel, it's gone. I have another channel that I could theoretically use, but I can't access it. Hmm. So I decided so to start a new one. And um, so there you go. There's my evolution as an astrologer.
0: Wow. I love your detailed story and very nice. I mean, you took us on a little journey of your of your life. Um, just really quick here, uh, is the lady Karen Lundegaard, is she still around?
1: That's a really interesting Question and I have a very interesting story to uh, share with Karen or about Karen. I think it might have been around 2011. It was one of these nights. I used to be a real night owl. Like I would stay up to. Aren't you
0: know, stargazers three. night owls?
1: <laughs> well, it it was an outgrowth of when I was a father. Like early on, like I was a father, so a lot of my daytime hours were dedicated to my son. So if I wanted to get anything done, it would be after he went to bed, which is around eight o'clock at night. So if you want to put in any considerable work, it'd be like from eight till about you know one or two in the morning, researching, writing, editing, getting everything together. So it was, you know, one of those late night times. Yeah, I really think it was around like one in the morning. And I was actually on Facebook having a Facebook chat with a woman named Karen, who was quite interesting, and we were talking about. You know, being psychic, and she asked me if I was psychic, and I said, "Well, I think we, I think we're all psychic." And then I began to talk about my relationship with Karen Lundergaard. So we have these two Karens, right? This kind of this interesting sync moment. And then after I said goodnight to Karen on Facebook, I decided to look up Karen Lundergaard. So I went online and trying to find out. Where is she? I'd love to be in touch with her, find out what happened to Karen. I came across this blog post, which was called How I Found Out About the Death of My Wife Through a Novel. I'm like, what is this all about? So I clicked on it and I began to read this, this blog post. And it was written by this guy. And he, he talked about how he, it was a story where he woke up one morning and he was talking to his wife and he was thinking about somebody and his wife said oh i was just thinking about that person no he was thinking about somebody and she mentioned his name and he said oh my my ex-wife karen used to do that all the time and what about the business for the morning and then his wife said hey can you drop me at the library and he said okay So he takes her to the library. Instead of dropping her at the library, he decides to go into the library. And normally this is a guy that would probably get, like, self-help books, human potential, those sort of things. Instead, he goes to where the novels are, and he looks at this book called How to Save a Fish from Drowning by Amy Tan, who's a pretty well-known writer, and he checks the book out. Then he goes home and he starts reading the introduction to the book. In, in the introduction of the book, Amy Tan, in real life, is in New York City, and it's a rainstorm, and she ducks in out of the rain under this awning, and she looks up, and it's the American Psychical Institute. This true story, by the way. It's not part of the book. True story. So <laughs> she decides to go in. She goes in, and she meets a psychic there, and the psychic is Karen Lundegaard. And Karen begins to um, do what she does. And she was doing a reading for her and got Amy Tan in touch with an ancestor. Uh, And Amy continued to connect and work with Karen. And this ancestor became the focus for this book that she was writing. So Karen played a role in stimulating something in Amy Tan to write this book. And then Amy Tan goes on to relate the story of Karen, who winds up having breast cancer and dies. So the guy who's Karen's ex-husband finds out that she died by getting that book. He didn't know that. Oh, my. And think about all the steps that had to take place. First of all, there's the conversation that happens at at the breakfast table where she pops into his head. Mm-hmm. Second, his wife decides to go to the library that day. Normally, he would drop her off, but he doesn't. He walks in instead of going to just the regular books. He goes to he goes to a stack, finds the Amy Tan book, pulls it off, starts reading it. There's the story about Karen. Wow! And she finds out she's, now it gets better.
0: Sounds like a movie already, like a script
1: for a movie. Well, it gets better, it gets better. So I think, oh my god, I got to write about. I've got to write about it. So I, you know, banging away. I'm like trying to put it all together, right? From the conversation I had earlier on in the night with a woman named Karen. Another Karen. And all the way up through finding all that out. And not only that, but she, Karen Lundergaard was in Escondido when she passed away. And I had been living in Escondido. um, Oh, what year was that? This was in the uh, 2000s, like 2000, I think, was it 2003 to 2005, like two years, two years in Escondido. Um, so I put it all together and I hit publish. Hmm. I got it done, went to bed, got up the next day. I'm going through stuff and I looked at Karen's obituary and I realized that I published that blog post on the anniversary of her death. Oh, wow. So she had actually died when I, it was was the anniversary of that day. I think she died like three or four years before that, but it was that day. And her daughter actually read that blog post and reached out to me and left a comment on my website so I'm convinced that Karen was in touch with me during that experience and led me through all those steps in some ways.
2: Yeah, it like, sounds like. the like that
1: was yeah. very, very thin. So the answer to your question is that you know she passed away and I wouldn't have known it had all those things had occurred in, in that sequence. And then the timing of me publishing that post and her, her passing was mind-boggling.
2: Wow!
0: Yeah, it does sound like she was working with you. That's yeah. amazing. Gives a chills was, kind of she story. Was, she
1: was a wonderful person. Sounds
0: like it. I feel that. Yeah. Yes, that's amazing. So, getting back to um, like, what kind of astrology do you practice, Robert? Curious. You're talking about astrology, give readings. What type of astrology? If there's a name for it.
1: Yeah, sure. It's it's called um, Placidus, Placidus, Western Placidus, Tropical Astrology. Okay. So when you, I mean, it's sort of the, you know, the default version of astrology that, you know, astrologers in, in the West practice, although there's many variations, equal house, whole sign has become very popular, which I don't use.
0: Do you know anything from East India?
1: well it first of all it's closer to severe astrology Hmm. Uh, so if you were to look at your veda chart there's pretty good chance that you might be the sign before you Hmm. it's a different system as a system i find it to be a little harsh and a little fatalistic like if you're born under a bad sign you're born under a bad sign there's nothing (laughs) you can do about that sounds asian (laughs) uh but in western astrology you know, Stephen Forrest came along and a lot of the evolutionary astrologers came along and began to see that the chart was a living, breathing, organic kind of experience and that you weren't a prisoner or trapped by the circumstances of your birth, per se, and that you could evolve along certain lines. You and don't really true. get that in, in Vedic astrology.
0: OK, that's a good clarification. And then you come along, you know, the transits and how we actually grow with the stars. I know I took a class from a local astrologer. His name was Stargazer, beloved mentor, he had passed last year. And he talked about how everyone is born at a certain time with these stars in a certain place. And it kind of gives them a trademark Mm
2: -hmm. connected
0: to the planets and the stars in that sense. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was interesting at that certain definite point of birth and time. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, Robert, you make some pretty accurate predictions. And I was fascinated with your show on Open Minds, where I first learned about you, how you would do these big pictures and political scenarios. It was like, wow, kind of blew me away. It was very intriguing. And how you do that. What are some of these predictions? And what does it really take to figure out?
1: That's called mundane astrology. And that's when you use astrology to kind of look at the world and see what's going on at a world level. And mm-hmm. If you can understand cycles and patterns, both astrologically and sort of intuitively, it becomes easier in some ways to kind of wrap your head around and be able to make calculated guesses and or predictions. So when I was on open, well, this is predating open minds. This is when I I had a 25 part show on Gaia called the 11th house. And I got into a lot of different stuff on the 11th house. And one of the things that I was looking at was when Neptune went into Pisces and I really got into this whole like uh, refugee stuff during that time. It was just starting to happen, but I could see it was going to be a big deal, a really, really big deal. It'd be And it's become a huge deal and it hasn't stopped since Neptune went into Pisces. Because if you think about the 12th house, which is the home of Pisces, like those are institutions that. 12, there are twelve thousand institutions that are places that we never go to, like prisons and insane asylums and whatever they call them now, um, recovery centers. Although some people go to recovery centers, but most people don't. And things like orphanages, um, foster homes, or uh, brothels. So those are all like 12th house things, right? So when Neptune went into Pisces, we're dealing with things like water, bodies of water. Also, we get into like victimization, and this idea that a kind of a new religion would emerge through Neptune and Pisces, and it clearly has. You know, it's this religion that's connected to the greater good and this religion that's connected to the environment it's this religion that's connected to all kinds of celebration of victimization or um, the uh, right. whatever call the, the, denig- the denigration the denigration of individualization
2: hmm.
1: because individuals are being denigrated through this time. Or the idea that individualism is connected to like colonialism and things like that. So with Neptune and Pisces, looking at it at that time, it was not that hard for me to figure out where this was going. And that we're clearly in in the midst of this Neptunian crisis in, in the world, you know, because there's all kinds of victimization taking place. And it can and, and it doesn't really serve anybody. In fact, it's victimization that's become politicization, right? So that's happening. And when you look at the water stuff, you know, and the Pisces, it was really interesting because there was this one, you know, they had these boats that would bring, you know, the, the you know, the quote unquote refugees from Africa or the or the Middle East to Europe and there was this one boat that was bringing them over again and again and again. And the name of the boat was Aquarius. Hmm. I'm like, oh, isn't that interesting? This boat has become synonymous with like hope, right? And this idea that, you know, we're all theoretically one. And in a lot of ways, you know, you have to ask, well, is it symbolic or is it exploitative? And probably a little bit of both. So when we look at these patterns, they're, if you kind of understand what to look for, it's not rocket science, but you have to understand what to look for and you have to be able to put things together. Like when, when Pluto went to Capricorn, it's like, okay, I know where this thing is going.
2: Mm.
1: You know, this thing is going into huge, huge power grab between government and business, right? It's going to happen it's a corporatocracy and where are we now businesses have become governments under themselves businesses will determine whether or not you can shop there or you can work there oh the government says well we won't allow a vaccine we won't allow a vaccine passport no 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 we're not going to do that of course not they're going to they're going to put it off on the businesses to do that corporation the corporations hands down they'll do it right so you go back and you look at pluto and capricorn during its inception, it wasn't that hard to figure out that this is where all this was leading.
2: And right? when
0: was that, Robert, the Pluto and Capricorn? And is it still there?
1: 2008, Pluto moves into Capricorn. And Yes, it's still there. It will be there until 2025 when it moves finally into Aquarius. Ah. So they're setting this up for this major trend. You know, Pluto is about transformation, cultural transformation. And this is a big one this is this is this is huge what we're going through right now.
0: it is um it's scary in a way. it feels like a vortex and a collective vortex in a sense because yes, we're going into that more than moving out of the individualism. And then didn't some planets move into Aquarius? Oh, solstice
1: It was winter solstice december twenty first it was the super conjunction between Jupiter and Saturn. so. Every 20 years, we get these super conjunctions with Jupiter and Saturn. And they, they tend to be important culturally, right? Like they're, they set the tone for what's going to happen for the next 20 years. So we had Jupiter-Saturn conjunct in Libra. Last time we had the super conjunction going in Libra. Mm. Uh, and during that period of time, it was, you know, we're dealing with things like relationships and rights. You know, liberties, you know, a lot of stuff going on during that period of time. And it's kind of interesting that, you know, before we get into this super conjunction, we have somebody like Julian Assange, who would be kind of part of this Jupiter, uh, I'm sorry, Saturn Jupiter conjunction in Libra, right? Which is things like fairness and equality and trying to balance and level the playing field. Whatever you think of Julian Assange, he's kind of part of that. And WikiLeaks is kind of part of that. And then the legality around that, you know, is he a traitor? Is he a spy? You know, he's not even, a, he's not even somebody who is a citizen of the United States. Hmm. So, he, you know, he, I don't think you can, I don't think you can, like, make him uh, or accuse him of, of treason. I don't think you can, because he's not even a citizen of the United States. If I'm not mistaken, he's a citizen of either the UK or Australia. So you can't even accuse him of that. So. But he's part of that, right? He's part of this sort of balancing things out. Okay, well, we've got tyranny over here. Let's open up WikiLeaks. Let's bring in information from whistleblowers so we can balance out the unchecked kind of power, tyranny, aggression that the military-industrial complex is unleashing on the world. So it's a very kind of WikiLeaksy kind of thing. And so just before we go through this super conjunction, Assange gets, gets jailed and now he's, you know, he's there. So, but that's kind of the, the, you know, what we call the like the zenith or the apotheosis. And we were going through a lot of that during, during that time. Um, So now we're into something else. Now we're into this whole Aquarian thing, which is the next 20 years. Like what's going to happen? Are we going to be crushed under the weight and gravity and oppression of Saturn and Aquarius and a technocratic one world, one rule for all system? Or will we expand our potential during this time with the compression forcing us to expand our horizons and re-reimagine kind of how the world can work or how society can work? Rebuild. Reimagine, or well, reimagine even what the individual is because we become really good at being individuals, but we haven't been really good at forming what I would call healthy groups. So what we've seen in my estimation, what we've seen the people that do have group consciousness or do have kind of this group awareness as individuals, I would say they're lesser people. And I'm not, this is not a slant on these people, but they are not rooted in this idea of being an individual. That's not what they're about. So they're not going to stick their necks out or they're not going to theoretically speak out as an individual. So then what they do is they bond together with other people because their like little sliver of individuality, whatever that is, gets to be combined with another and another and another and another and another so that now they're this one kind of organelle. And they're a group because in many instances they suck at being individuals. Whereas individuals who are good at being individuals often suck at being in groups because why do I need this group? They're going to tell me what to do. I know what to do. I know how to I know how to run my own life. (laughs) So that's why like the so-called right or whomever are really not very good at being in groups. Mm -hmm. You've got you've got a bunch of individuals that are trying to figure out how to work together. Well, we can't we don't have that. We don't have that that luxury anymore. So we have to figure out how to work together now.
0: Coming back into balance, like it sounds like you're talking about the polarities, you know, the extremes of the polarities, but yet we're being called to balance that, bring that back into some kind of harmonization, it sounds like.
1: Right. I mean, so for us to get through this time, and when I say us, I'm talking about, you know, people who believe in things like, you know, freedom of speech, freedom of movement, things that individuals would believe in and honor and respect in order for us to get through this time we're going to have to bond together because these other groups have already figured out how to bond together and they operate really well in terms of their group identity. They have this thing down, right? They've been working on community organizing since the 1960s. Mm-hmm. Now what they have to do theoretically is they have to learn how to be better individuals to take more personal responsibility for their lives. Instead of pointing it at somebody, say this person or this group is the reason why I'm oppressed that's where that's where their work has to be hmm. our work on the individual side has to be well we need to figure out a way to work together because if we don't these people that have you know learned how to form groups and operate groups and organize groups we're going to get crushed we will get crushed so this is where we're at now it's a very interesting dynamic in terms of this kind of whole aquarian sort of um thing
0: Do you have anything else about where we're at? Any other influences or planetary alignments or anything that plays in Robert right now?
1: Well, we're going through a really strong mutable phase. So in astrology, they're called the triplicities. You have cardinal energy, fixed energy, mutable energy, and they'll perform kind of a certain function. So in May and June, the, the mutable energy is through the roof. We're in Gemini. We'll be in Gemini at the end of May. Uh, we have a lot of beautiful energy even coming in now, uh, even though we're not in the month of Gemini yet, we're in Taurus. So, that, so May and June, is, they're going to be big months. We've got Mercury retrograde. We've got a blood moon coming up on the 26th. I think reality is up for grabs. And I think whoever can kind of hack reality in a way that's going to be creative outside the box, create different narratives, different timelines, I think it's kind of Really in place for the next roughly forty-five days.
0: Huh. It's, going to be
1: an inter- it's going to be an interesting time. It's going to be messy.
0: I feel that messy. as well. I have a strong feeling. Yeah, the May June right now. And do you feel, in some ways, that it's kind of an up to you kind of situation for people? What did you say? It's up in the air, up for grabs. Curious about that.
1: So I, you know, I, you know, I like a little trickster energy. And uh, there's a lot of trickster energy around this month, and you know when you play with the trickster energy, you can get bitten by it. But at the same time, you know you can turn the tables on people or institutions. Hmm. And the so-called right is really good at that. You know they're really good at creating memes, and they're really great at creating funny videos. Very kind of trickster-esque. One of the things that during this time that I would encourage is you know, is your script really your script? Do you have to stay with your script? Maybe you can write a different script. Maybe you can see yourself in a different way. Maybe you can define yourself differently. Maybe you can redefine, you know, your local paradigm differently. And there's a lot of different ways you can do that. I think this, the next 45 days could be a really interesting time where people can take some risks, step outside their box a little bit, as long as you're not, consciously hurting anyone, right? As long as you're not consciously hurting one or doing any harm, you can definitely, I think, bend reality a little bit. So and, it's
0: a good time to try new things, try something yeah, new.
1: Well, I would say just, you know, look at your canned responses. Like when something comes up, is there a different way that you can respond to it? Or is there a different kind of approach that you can have with the world or people in your life those are the things that I would encourage, because if you can do that, if you can find that and you can insert yourself in that way, then things get interesting. Because I feel like we're in this time where things are really flexy. And when we move into like July, and you know, we get into July, we get Mars coming into Leo and a lot of fixed energy comes into play, which I think could be really tricky.
2: Mm. Hard,
1: hard, hard squares, Mars, hard square with Mars, to Uranus, Mars, a Saturn, you know, Mars and Leo, you get people that are gonna be, feel entitled, act out. Before we get into that, there's some space to change some things up and to, you know, try to find a more creative response to your everyday situation, your environment, your work, your, how you interact with people. And don't be afraid to take a few risks, right? We're all, we're all so kind of risk averse in some ways. And I know you took a risk. I mean, you took a risk to do this show and to <laughs> put yourself out there and change your life. And I applaud that.
0: Thank you. And I, and the mobile journey going out into nowhere. Anybody wants to take a risk, get a camper and a van and, and just go somewhere and don't even know where you're going.
1: Yeah, there you go. Right there. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I think we all are being called in a sense and challenged to change and look at things differently, have a different perspective, maybe a higher perspective in a sense, or coming into because that's who we are. Like you said, we're all psychic. Many of us are coming into opening those abilities. I think there's a great push from if you want to call universe or from ourself to grow, basically, and become better beings.
1: Yeah, I would agree with
0: that. Well. I hope that the story of the rebuilding is going to play out that's my hope and this time of flux right now is almost like it determines the next steps like you almost can't know until we experience this what I call a vortex anyway Robert oh any other thoughts on that
1: Not really I mean just try to you know do your best and take care of your health and try not to be pressured by anyone else to do anything that you and your spirit Don't feel like you need to be doing. Do
0: you have any final thoughts, Robert?
1: You were born here to be here at this time. And uh, you have a, a mission and a purpose to fulfill. And there is a force far greater than you that wants to help you achieve and accomplish that mission to the fullest extent that you can, perhaps even more than you know or understand. And, you know, invite that into your life. And I'm a big believer in what we would call God. It's a term that's, I think, too small. And that's really where we're connected up to the infinite. And it has absolutely everybody's best interest at heart and wants us to evolve to the absolute best kind of example and portal for that experience that we can be. So you're here. You're here. Let it come through.
0: Yes, we are. How can people find out more about watching your live stream or get a session or even sign up for a course, Robert?
1: So I have two websites. One is com. That's my astrology website.
0: And 15 minutes of OV flame dot mm-hmm. com. Mm-hmm. And it's every day at nine.
1: Mm-hmm. Oh. Except for Friday. Friday I have a an interview show that I do at 12 minutes. Okay. And then Sunday night, I do Sunday night astral live.
0: So what time is your Sunday night live astral stream? 8 p.m. Central. 8 p.m. Central. Well, Robert, it's been a pleasure interviewing you. And thank you, Star Wizard.
1: Star Wizard. <laughs> right. your,
0: I'm calling you Star Wizard. I hope you don't mind.
1: I thought you already had a Star Wizard playing, your
0: Stargazer.
1: Oh, Stargazer. Okay, so he's Stargazer. And I'm Star Wizard. You're Star okay.
0: Wizard. Like I said, he passed one of the most beloved mentors I've had and astrologer as well, very much into the psychic astrology, just like you.
1: Cool. Well, good. Yes. I'm glad I'm glad to be Star Wizard.
0: Okay. <laughs> good. And thank you, Robert. And I'll see you on the live stream.
1: Okay, Daisy. You know where to find me now.
0: I do. Finally. Oh, yeah. Daisy and her turtle tech skills. Uh, I'm Daisy Oz. Thanks for listening to my Conscious Living interviews. Consider supporting me in my works by subscribing to my YouTube channel at Daisy Oz Productions. Also, you are welcome to contribute via PayPal on my website at daisyoz.com. And thank you to Dimitri Posudin, who provided the awesome theme music.